Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Ossifer with your host, Paul Frederick. got to talk about that i gotta i, I, I want to understand your radio show um what you're doing with it so let me let me introduce you i think we're live now so like let me introduce you so people know what we're talking about all right welcome everybody today my guest is janusz kostruski or chester john kasky or some know him as uncle john that's how i know him um because he happens to be my uncle probably one of the primary reasons um, if y'all went to the Flambeau Noir uh, deal in Portland there a couple years back, uh, Uncle John was with me there, tending the, tending the booth with me, doing tarot card readings, um, all kinds of great stuff. He's a retired trial attorney. He's been all over the world. He's, uh, he used to live in Greece, right? You used to live in Greece? I taught there for 30 years. See, that's so badass. I, 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 I never permanently lived there. Okay. So he's taught classes, published books on subjects of American history, Northwest history, Revolutionary War, history of warfare, flags, ghosts, serial killers, and he does seances, and he reads tarot cards. So, happy Easter, Uncle John, or happy lockdown. Welcome to the show. What's up? Well, I'm just sitting here enjoying the lockdown, but I'm always locked down. You know, I don't, uh, I don't get out and roam around with people. So it hasn't, it hasn't made much difference for you? Oh, it's improved it dramatically. You know, if we continue the lockdown um, for another couple months, Spokane will be a halfway decent place to live in, you know. But the people are getting, they're getting really bored with this lockdown. Walking my dogs yesterday in, in some public parks, I noticed big groups of people. And then this morning, there were some people wearing bunny ears. And, you know, it's like they're, just revolting is a revolution on our hand. They've had enough of lockdown. <laughs> really? So the bunny ears is a revolutionary sign. So, I mean, do you think this yeah. Easter, is this, is the holiday, is that the day that's going to break it? Is it going to break yeah, probably, this cycle? Probably, probably. Uh, you know, they ignore the fact that Jesus is probably smiting us. But, you know, I was walking my dogs yesterday in the neighborhood, and I noticed this pavilion that some people had erected in their yard and it, it they were dressed they had a bunny there uh, that was dressed in a bunny and they were passing out candy and they had a huge crowd of neighborhood uh oh 30 and 40 somethings with their kids and they were passing out candy about a third of them had masks on i mean i didn't have a mask on but it's just like there it's revolution mm -hmm. it's like it won't last much longer mm -hmm. especially with the uh uh with the uh ladies hairdressers shut down and my wife has just about had enough i mean she gets her nails done twice a month this is it uh-huh so all i'm all i'm hearing about is nails and her gray hair that's showing oh yeah and that's like just a perfect example when they shut down an economy they can't they can't predict they think they're shutting down the the the, the wickedest places the restaurants and the bars and stuff but they can't predict all the other uh chain reactions that yeah. will happen for that you know no, the stereo, you can't, you can't control women, uh, the females either. I mean, they're like in charge. <laughs> so as long as they're scared, that's fine. And when they stop being scared and get bored, that's terrible. That's revolution. 
Yeah. No, there's gonna be a there's gonna be a point where it where it breaks. So I mean, and and Easter, of of all of the holidays, Easter's never been like my my favorite holiday. It's just always kind of you know, all right, it's there. Um, but then now more so than ever, it's just like Easter is just like a celebration of we can't really do anything. You know, we just got to sit here and let it happen. So I know that you're really uh, well read and and well studied on mythology and history. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the um, about Easter, like the significance of it and the meaning of it in a you know mythological esoteric sense? Does it have any? Does it? Well, any, in a spiritual sense, it's meaningless. Uh, mm-hmm. But in a uh, an American mythological sense, it's it, it's it's important. I mean, it's as important as the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it's the one, two pseudo religious holidays that everyone should share in if they're a good American. You know. And Easter, I mean, it, it, and I don't know if you've watched television. Well, sure, we've all watched television. That's all we can do now. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, so, but uh, you see the religious commercials. I mean, it's 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 insane. Mm-hmm. And the newscast, even on CNN, they have these priests and bishops and, you know, these preachers that, that are giving messages of hope. And they're saying, well, you know, the, the uh, coronavirus, this is a, a chance for us to return to God. I mean, it's strange, but it's a part of the American mythology that we are God-ordained, and in God we trust. It's even on our money, and so we have to give a little lip service to God, however that's interpreted, and we do it twice a year in kind of a hypocritical, pseudo-religious type of way at Easter and Christmas, but th- that's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, as much as God does for us, that's about all we can throw him back a bone or two, or her. Right. So, um, what about, um, let's talk about your book. Which one? Spokane Bedtime Stories. Well, yeah. Okay, Spokane Bedtime Stories. All right. This yeah. is the latest book. So this but, is your this is your new book, right? This is the latest, latest uh, and greatest. Yeah, it's the latest, but it's uh, it's kind of a commercial. I don't usually do commercial stuff, but it's a commercial stuff. It's weird stories of Spokane. It's fifty stories, um, uh, of Spokane news the, thematically, um, fires, disasters, ghosts, uh, um, things of this nature, and uh, it's. Uh, it went hand in hand with uh, my radio show. I do a uh, half hour radio show every week in Spokane called Spokane Bedtime Stories. And it, it airs at midnight on Friday nights. Midnight at Friday. Friday nights. And uh, the station used to think that, that well, no, nobody's listening to the damn radio at midnight on Friday. No, they were wrong because when they started taking off um, the show that my show replaced, they got a bunch of calls in. You're taking away our radio show at midnight. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I've been doing that a year. And that's a different story. It, somehow, some ways, it, it ties into Spokane. I did one uh, two weeks ago on the uh, pandemics. We've had six pandemics in the United States since 1890, uh, mm-hmm. the great Russian flu pandemic. Uh-huh. And then also, you know, I highlighted Spokane's reaction to those pandemics. Mm-hmm. We're kind of on a sissy pandemic pandemic right now because in the 1968 pandemic, 100,000 Americans died. We forget that. 
Yeah, but, so uh, it's 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 so popular right now. I mean, everyone's talking about pandemics. I mean, Netflix is making all these pandemic documentaries and stuff, and everyone's yeah. like, everyone knows like the the you know f- you know fifty to a hundred million died in the Spanish flu. Everyone knows this stuff now because everyone's going out and researching it. But but the frustrating thing for me, or the interesting thing, is that the more you study these previous pandemics, it starts to look like this current one really isn't quite that bad. No, it's a sissy pandemic, but it's a great American pandemic because everyone can get frightened. And uh, the mayor of L.A. said it's okay to cry. I've cried, he's told everybody, because I've been so frightened. Uh, You know, it's okay. And then we've had our little scare and, you know, less than, you know, 20,000 people have died. And then we can go back and put on our bunny ears and enjoy uh, Easter. Yeah. So it didn't really kill a bunch of people. I mean, yeah, maybe it'll. Uh, but, the, but the history of viruses is that they don't really want to kill the host. I mean, the, the 19, uh, uh, 18, 19 pandemic, uh, it was horrific when it first started. People would uh, would die within six hours and they would they would uh, exude blood from their eyes and their nose and their ears, all orifices of the body. It was so horrible. It just scared the bejesus out of everybody. But then it fairly quickly, like within four months, it uh, morphed into a type of, uh, of uh, existence in which it would not kill a host mm-hmm. or just weak or just weak hosts. Mm-hmm. It ended up killing 70 million people, but, uh, usually, but most of them were in the first wave. I mean, the viruses, I do think, have a collective mentality, and it doesn't really pay for them to kill their host. I mean, they're not predatory in that sense because there's nowhere to go. Right. So they want a, a host that will tolerate them, and then they can insinuate themselves into the RNA and uh, and live on. Now, your cousin, my son Michael, he's got a PhD in medical biology from Tulane University in New Orleans. I threw out this to him two years ago. I said, "Well, Mike, is it possible when I was studying viruses that?" viruses or viral intrusions or insinuations into the human genome uh, chromosomal uh, patterns was a major cause of, uh, of uh, evolution. Mm-hmm. And the change mm-hmm. of, uh, of the genus uh, Homo over time, and he says, yeah, he said that's on the cutting edge. That's what, pe- that's what uh, we think as we, meaning his own discipline think that's what brings about evolutionary changes the viruses that really insinuate themselves into the human genome they don't leave Mm -hmm. they just stay around you know kind of like herpes there's no cure for them and they don't really leave and is that connected with um because like a virus runs through people and then eventually an immunity the, the people build up an immunity to it does immunity that... in terms of not dying. Right. Yes. I mean, immunity in, in, in terms of not dying. Is that sort of a sign that, okay, the virus is allowed to – the virus has a home here in, these, in, in this host because it won't kill them. They have an yeah. immunity to it now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like in 2005, uh, I, uh, I uh, probably, in, in, uh, according to my uh, oncologists, uh, caught a, um, a virus. Uh, in the third world, either in Africa or Central America when I was there, maybe maybe uh, some wild parts of the Philippines. But they said, and this virus um, translocated uh, to uh, chains uh, in my chromosomes, uh, and it was permanent. Uh, I've got the virus to this day, and it was uh, life-threatening, and I almost died, and that's why I like Houston so much, MD Anderson 
hospital there, you know. I went in on a cane and walked out. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, at halfway through that, when, when there was uh, like no hope of surviving and there was no cure, quote unquote, for this type of, of cancer I had, I, it suddenly occurred to me that the secret is coping, is adapting, that this cancer, this viral driven cancer is going to be a permanent part of my, my personal genome, uh, my chromosomes now. And, uh, and I can live with that and I can live with that. And, uh, you know, um, uh, so I changed my attitude and struck fear and trepidation away from me, which is the big killer of humans, not the disease itself. It's, it's uh, panic and frightening. And, uh, and I, you know, I've still got it today. The oncologist said, except I'm asymptomatic because uh -huh. I just live with it. Right. So, uh, instead of a, uh, and it's a virus. Yeah. And you, so you switched from a, a conflict model to more of a reconciliation model with, with the cancer or the virus. Exactly, exactly. So after I, I came to Spokane, the American uh, Cancer Society wanted me to do counseling because I had survived this horrendous counseling and, and everything. And then, you know, after like four months, uh, they fired me. And the reason they fired me, I was counseling people, just chill out, live with it. I didn't, I, I was going against the uh, American Cancer Society's uh, conflicting, uh, you know, we're going to kill this virus. Right. No, you don't, you don't kill a virus. A virus can kill you. Uh -huh. But, uh, but uh, it, uh, it, it's, it's just part of the natural makeup of, uh, of uh, the change of living species. Can uh, trees have uh, uh, cancer? Right. And they, uh, trees and uh, plants can live with cancer. That's their only solution. Uh huh. And they do. No, that's if fascinating. If you ever go down, you're in Houston and you have a bunch of oak trees, a, a lot of oak trees. They're beautiful in the old part over by Rice University. And if you walk in and you'll see that on the oak tree, this huge knot. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen. Oh, yeah, sure. Usually on the, uh, sometime on the big branches, but then on the lower trunk too. That's cancer. Okay. Uh, and uh, the tree has learned to just uh, to live with it and isolate it and not make it life-threatening. Now, sometimes uh, uh, aberrant uh, viruses can kill plants, but uh, but oak trees in particular are, are very adept at just uh, at just uh, incorporating them. Yeah, that's no, fascinating. There's a lot of insight in that because now you see you see that yeah, cancer American Cancer Association has a very much a conflict. It's like a conflict oh, yeah. struggle model. Cancer, we're going to beat you. And, sure, video and, games, free video games where you shoot the cancer cells. And, yeah, and, and that's exactly what they're rolling out. That's, that's, that's the propaganda um, 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 recommendation that they're rolling out for this, this conflict with the coronavirus. It's, it's totally yeah. a war model where it's, it's, an, it's an invisible war, an invisible enemy. We're going to fight we're this enemy. We're going to win against no this cure. enemy. There's no cure for viral infections. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Accommodation is the only thing. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and, and well, what about, what about vaccinations? Do you think vaccinations are any good? Like, I mean, we got annual yeah. flu vaccinations. Um, uh, for if you haven't got it. If you haven't got it. I think some vaccinations work. We know that not all of them work. And that uh, the same strain like uh, H1N1. It struck in 1956, uh, uh, and it was called the uh, Asian flu or the bird flu, mm -hmm. and it killed millions of people on Earth, Well, and, and, and a lot in the United States, not 100,000, but a lot, and they developed a, a vaccine for it. 
Well, they kept it, and then from 1958 or nine on, you would uh, prudent people would get their annual uh, vaccine for the evil virus. Well, in 1968, in Vietnam and southern China, a new virus appeared. New? No, it was just uh, it was just a uh, variation on the theme of the H1N1. Uh, avian and uh, uh, bird flu virus of 1956. And everyone rushed out to that hadn't been uh, uh, got a vaccine to get a vaccine. Well, the virus had changed. <laughs> it had it had uh, mutated just a right. little bit to yeah. defend itself against that vaccine. It's the same virus, the same basic virus. Right. And it kill, ended up killing 100,000 people in the United States. Yeah. So that's why I don't I don't have a lot of faith in 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 flu vaccines and you know I get them a lot I get them a lot just because of the nature of the work that I do um, you know connected with the healthcare yeah. industry I'm I'm in this position where I can get a free flu sure. flu vaccine like most years and so I'll get one um, I'll take it but then sometimes I'll end up getting the flu anyhow and we know that. I mean, they have to change it every year because the the flu viruses are mutating every uh, year. I think collectively they do have an intelligence, quite frankly. Right, right. They 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 respond to that. You know, it's like the the classic, uh, you know, duality conflict where ju they just struggle. You know, active and 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 passive force just struggle back and forth with each other, and no one ever actually like you know fully wins because they never find a way to like uh, reconcile. So like the viruses. Uh, respond by like mutating and getting trickier mm -hmm. and um and and since we've been vaccinating ourselves to try and keep them out of us we're not they're not getting into our gene pool so our gene pool is not building up a, it's not reconciling with them or building up an, an immunity yeah. or maybe a maybe a tolerance maybe a tolerance yeah, is a better tolerance way of like thinking word. about yeah. it uh yeah so when i hear them talking about we're going to get a vaccine and, you know, that's that's when we're finally going to be safe from it. But it's not going to be for like another year or two. You know, I, I to me, it just sounds like that's like more um, more scare scare propaganda to keep us like instilled in, in a state of, of terror thinking, oh, wow, for the next year yeah. or so, you know, yeah, but it's a uh, it's the blind leading the blind. But, you know, the uh, the, the viral scientists say that a virus can uh can like lay on the sands of the Sahara for thousands of years and become activated. They've taken viruses into outer space on the shuttles, exposed them to the radiation of outer space, and then bring them back, and they're active. Mm -hmm. And so this whole idea that we can kill the virus, oh, does boiling the water kill the virus? Oh, that's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> the viruses are fragmentary RNA, and they're looking for to to link up those hosts, those chains, of uh, DNA and RNA, and uh, and actually have a, a place to roost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 hard to say like where everything is going to go with it, but um, I think that's a lot. There's a lot of uh, insight that you have on just the model that we use to approach this, and and you just see immediately all of the the authority figures um, have adopted a a conflict model, which is always easy to translate into. Um, into what would you say, civic policy, public policy, and and, mm, and stuff like yeah. that? Because I mean, that's the nice way to like look at it. Enemy, yeah, that's you know? the nice way to look at it. There's a darker way to look at it as well. It's uh, to uh, uh, to serve uh, um, preordained interest in in population control. Uh -huh. You know, you want to keep the people upset. You want to keep them thinking they're needy and things like that. Yeah. Yeah.
So this reminds me for some reason for the, this is this is taking me back to the Easter discussion. Um, so all of the, the and, and all of the holiday stuff that we're seeing all over on, on television, just in general, but especially today, you're seeing all of the uh, prayers and services going on mm-hmm. inside mm-hmm. empty churches. Yeah. And I just I, I keep thinking, I bet they like that. I bet they're ha- they're like I got the whole church to myself, you know. You can hear it. it's got perfect <laughs> reverb, you know. Um, I think they're loving it. It's just like you know, you see like the yeah. teams of of of, of cops and, and government officials taking tours of the parks. You know, I saw the mayor of Houston yesterday was taking a tour of the park in a golf course, a golf cart with some people to make uh, Memorial Park to make sure that no everyone's abiding by the rules of not being there. And I'm thinking, man, he's just loving that. He gets to ride through the park oh, all by himself yeah. on a golf on a golf cart, and no one can bother him. I think I think that they like it. Oh, they they love it. <laughs> They love a good emergency. And this is a great emergency because it's not it's a pseudo emergency. I, I'm not I'm not denigrating the whatever, twenty thousand people that have died, but it's not twenty million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York hasn't in San Francisco haven't been H bombed by the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, there's so uh, the the uh, um, volcano outside of uh, Seattle. Uh, hasn't blown off and killed five million people, mm-hmm. or, the, or the 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 super volcano that's in Yellowstone Park hasn't erupted and killed fifty million Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not a real emergency in that sense, but it, it's controllable. Yeah, and nice. and you know they got this idea that you know there, there's just this image of like you know you know hospitals are like oh people are dying in the streets and dying in the hallways and stuff like that, but then. Then you also hear reports that, you know what, none of the hospitals are really at capacity yet. All this hoopla is like based upon estimates of, oh, it's, you know, next week or Ah, maybe the week after that, it's going to be really, really bad. But right now it's like, I mean, they're hard, they're working hard. And And I I don't mean to belittle it. uh, Because, you know, if if, if the people stop dying of, of the virus, then the politicians and the priests, well, the priests will say it's because of our prayers, and the right. politicians say it's because of our advanced, uh, you know, uh, prophylactic uh, uh, measures that we used that uh, that kept it from spreading. So we're he- all heroes. It's a win-win situation. This is great. I mean, this it doesn't get better if you're a politician. Yeah. So so this reminded me of um, I recently read about a interesting cult you know i'm a connoisseur of weird cults i love studying weird cults um there is a group called uh urantia and this is like in the 50s or so i think you know and they had a whole like system of like the universe is like you know based on this and they had a leader who's getting information from you know from beyond and it's kind of semi i mean they have jesus in there and and jesus is going to come back but they also kind of have like you know there's like you know, uh, extraterrestrials and stuff that are conveying the message. Yeah. Anyhow, it's a doomsday cult. They um, had the doomsday, the end of the world. They, the, the, the leader like picked a specific date. It was a specific date on the calendar and he announced it to all of the papers. Um, and so all the reporters were there and everyone showed up for the end of the world and everything. All the faithful were there. And of course what happens is the, the world did not end. And then the leaders came out and they said, well, the world didn't end because the the uh, the the masters or whatever they decided that you had been done such a good job of being faithful that they're yeah. not going to destroy the world now and so they all went they back and everyone you would think people would say oh, this religion is bogus at that point but no 
because of that, they're like even they they doubled down on their on their faith yeah. in this. And it's like the seven day. I can't Adventist. say this is the same pattern that's like going on here that they're using right now. It's like every oh, time okay. we see that the numbers aren't quite as bad as they as they you know frightened us with. The the answer is always well, it's because you've been such good boys and girls. You've been practicing social distancing and washing your hands. Yeah. You've been you know, doing so that, what we said. Yeah, you've been you do doing what, what we said. Exactly. It's like, yeah. exactly. And they're, they're, they're treating us like children, you know, showing us how yeah, to wash are. our hands. We're, and We stuff. are. We are. <laughs> We're sheep. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me lighten this up. Let's like talk, get back to your book. I wanted to say one thing about your book that really stood out to me that I liked a lot was the, uh, when I was thumbing through it, this caught me and it drug me into it. The chapter on the 22 caliber killer. And yeah. you start this out with a discussion of the oracle of the city of Delphi and the immortal words on there, know thyself. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about why you think that is significant? Um, that, that know thyself term, I hear, you know, some people say oh, Socrates said this or, you know. Uh, Plato said this, and I think everyone, I think a lot of people said it, but what is the significance of that? Of knowing thyself or the yeah. oracles? Because a lot of people, if you just ask them in the street, hey, do you know yourself? They'll be like, oh, sure, of course I know. I know who I am, you know? Um, but do they really? Is there a reason no, why they I mean, made uh, special emphasis of this, you know, via you know the oracle of Delphi and so forth? Well, oracles... The oracles have been around as long as Homo sapiens have been around, uh, and uh, the Greek oracles uh, originated in uh, specifically that form. That were also Christian or oracles later on. We had uh, Christian prophets and oracles, uh, but in ancient uh, Egypt, uh, the uh, the intermediary with uh, the deities. So you went to an oracle to get questions answered that you couldn't answer yourself, presumably, presumably. And so then the oracles would speak in some Republican, Democratic type of way that anything they say is uh, is potentially the truth. But, but the idea of know thyself in the Socratic view went further. It, uh, it went to uh, know uh, who you in particular are. Uh, your own your own psyche, your own person. Now this isn't popular in a um, in an age uh, that we live in in which uh, we have various forms of uh, humanism as our secular religion uh, because we're more into groupthink and synchronism that is uh, that's particularly destructive of of the idea of knowing thyself. Now for uh, I've taught courses on divination, the history of divination. It's very, very old. It's very Im important, but it's uh, uh, to human activities. But uh, you mentioned I, I also uh, teach, and I have taught for many years now, tarot reading, and I adopt a type of tarot that's not magic. Uh, it's not supernatural. It's, uh, it's using tarot in the way that some therapists at least used to use tarot cards, and that is as psychological uh, triggers uh, into which you can communicate with uh, the own, your own part of your mind that may not be uh, readily apparent to your uh, conscious thinking. Uh, 
Um, and um, as I mentioned, I teach whole courses on this, but I'm uh, really into that in the sense of the knowing thyself uh, uh, type of theme, because using, oh, all kinds of things. Tarot's just one of them. I've done mass tea leaf readings. I've done uh, palmistry uh, as well. It's a, a way to with your inner self and, uh, and find out uh, about uh, what you yourself know. I've told uh, students for um, oh, over a decade that the smartest, the wisest person you will ever know is yourself. You just have to get to know the recesses of your own mind. And it's empowering to use triggers at first if, if you need help, like tarot, like palmistry, uh, tea leaf reading, uh, triggers to help uh, enter the recesses of your subconscious or what scientists would call your unconscious mind um, and, uh, and, and have them bubble up those memories, those uh, insights, those feelings bubble up to your conscious uh, mind. We have parts of our brain that record, that record every sensory perception we've ever had since birth. But we only have in our conscious minds uh, access to 10% of our memory. Now, if you sit down and you try very, very hard, you might remember the name and maybe the face of your kindergarten teacher, maybe. But in our subconscious, uh, that has recorded uh, 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 memory, sensory memories from birth, we know the names of every one of the children in that class. I mean, I know that sounds wild, but we have the vast majority of our, our memories that we have as humans, it goes straight to, uh, uh, goes straight to memory organs in our brain um, that, uh, and bypass our consciousness. So we have a lot of memories, a lot of sensory perceptions. We know a lot of things about humans, about our environment, about the situation that we're about disease, about how our body has reacted uh, to disease uh, threats in the past. And the key is not listening to CNN mm. or Fox. Mm -hmm. The key to knowing thyself is to actually know yourself. And that's not magic. You know, it's not hocus pocus. You know, I don't. Uh, uh, you know, I don't usually charge tarot cards by the light of the full moon. No, it's a it's a, a psychological instrument to help us open up the inner recesses of our subconscious and subconscious that we can uh, can know ourselves. Hmm. And actually, if you just blur your vision a little bit, these famous famous oracles of Delphi, and I forget the, the most famous one in, uh, in ancient Egypt that they all sprang from, uh, are triggers too, because they'll say weird things, and then you say, oh, that's so wise. What an insight. And what they are is they're providing psychological triggers that can help us trigger our own memories. Knowing thyself is so empowering. I mean, it's really empowering. It's not taking your cues uh, to living your life uh, by what the community around you says or what's politically correct. It's delving into your own wisdom, your own inner uh, wisdom, and, uh, and, and, and having that consciously come up to where you say, yeah, 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 yeah. 
I'm hip to that. So um, another thing that Socrates said, uh, talked about, was the idea of the daemon. You know, we're getting into da demonic territory here. So do you see, d does that connect with the idea, um, the ideas that you're talking about of, of, of connecting with the psyche and, and the higher parts yeah, of the Yeah, you know, I've said for years to my classes and friends, etc., that reality is not for everyone. It takes courage to look at reality. And knowing thyself is knowing some bitter truths, not, not only about ourselves, but about our species, about how we act, how we think. Uh, and unless we do that, then we don't have the tools in which to act as free people, as free men and women. We have to understand, yes, definitely, definitely. Right. And so I think that's an important piece of it, too, is just is just freedom. Now, this is something that um, um, Ospensky, one of my one of my uh, favorite writers on esoteric subjects, Ospensky talked about how like esoteric schools, which something like the, you know, the, the Oracle at Delphi would be considered. We could probably consider that a uh, a um, aspect of uh, esoteric thought or esoteric yeah. schools, which existed like during that time period. But for in order for schools like that to um, to exist, there always has to be a certain um, amount of of freedom or social freedom within within the society at the time. And so you could talk about the Greeks under the time of the 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 uh, you know this is a, or the time of city states of Greeks were probably relatively free versus how much what the, what they became you know later on. Um, and, and, and you can talk about Egypt and how, you know, a lot of their esoteric ideas probably came from the pre-dynastic period and then just kind of existed like after that and how in the West around the turn of the century, we had kind of an explosion of freedom, like moving towards the West. And so there's been this, this mm -hmm. revival of esoteric thought. There's been all kinds of, I mean, just across the board. I mean, you could even go back and talk about, you know, spiritual entrepreneurs in terms of, you know. You know Brigham Young and stuff like that. In addition to you know Theosophy and 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 you know Aleister Crowley and all the other things that have like that have like popped up in the West. And so to the context that I'm bringing all of this in is what does that mean about the future right now where we are where we've just had this incredible sweeping um, sort of you know blanketing of of freedom across the board. What does that mean for the future of esoteric thought? What does that mean for the future well, of people trying can, to know, uh, the, know people themselves? People like to, yeah, you know, people like to talk, and they like to communicate, and they like to share. So, in the sense, the, the sense that uh, you're not uh, arrested and executed uh, for saying something on the street corner. I mean, that's fine, and that goes along with our uh, um, uh, our type, our current. One of the current forms of uh, humanism that we have that uh, hi historically called liberal humanism, that you have the right to do that. But, but everyone on every woman and man on earth today is as free as humans have ever been to think and to know thyself and, and deliver themselves. In terms of, yeah, we, we, we've been bred, though, Paul, to a, uh, uh, to a type of society where free thinking is is really no longer a danger to society. If it was, we would have dire consequences 
for uh, developing the type of uh, esoteric thought and everything that you're talking about. That is, uh, that is uh, proportional to the threat of society. Uh, the vast majority of people adopt the, um, the, the social humanistic uh, model of, uh, of following politically correct thought and thinking the right things and dressing the right way and uh, doing the, the romantic commercialism of, uh, of uh, happiness through the purchase of, uh, of goods and services. It's not a threat. I mean, I, it's, it's horrible to say that, but uh, to the leaders of society and the, the movers and shakers, uh, free thinking, esoteric, it's not a threat. And, and that's, uh, uh, that's a more depressing way to look at it, other than we've entered into an era where it's encouraged. No, it's not encouraged. It's just tolerated. But we've, uh, we've, in, we've had periods in the past, too, where free think medieval, uh, 16th century religious thought, um, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, state socialism, where uh, you think anything you want to, but you keep your mouth shut and don't have a meeting about it with uh, with other humans, or right. we'll kill you. Right. Well, I mean, we're only that's... not killed because it's not necessary to kill us. We're voices in the wilderness. Right. Well, they 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 know that. The words are connected with thoughts, so it's uh, words are like the manifestations of thoughts. You know, Zarathustra had this good thoughts, good words, good deeds, like sort of yeah. form, formula for stuff, and and part of that is like the the acknowledgement that these things are all connected. So I mean, that's why they talk about freedom of speech in the Constitution instead of freedom of thought, right? Yeah. The freedom of speech, you have to be able to actually actually it's it, it's not good enough to just say I mean what does it mean to say that people are free in their mind? Well, everyone's free in their mind, right? You can lock lock me up and put me in solitary confinement. Well, I still have my mind, you know, I can still think whatever I whatever I whatever I yeah. want with it. But then there's the manifestations of our thoughts that come out into society and then that like is a representation of like whether we're really free or not. But of course, I mean it begins as a decision. A decision in the mind. Well, freedom of speech, of course, was hugely debated um, in the 1770s in the United States. And Great Britain did not then, nor does it have now, freedom of speech. Uh, the British uh, conception of freedom of speech is freedom of thought. Uh, and then all over Western Europe, we have inroads on the ideal now of freedom of speech uh, because hate speech. Uh, even hate symbolic speech is illegal. If you wear, a, a, if you had a Nazi armband in Germany, you, they'd arrest you. Mm -hmm. If you if you said uh, uh, anti-Semitic uh, or uh, anti-Islamic uh, slogans on the street in Paris, you will be arrested and you will go to jail. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea we're confronting that now in an atmosphere of humanism in the United States, where um, there is a big movement to block non-politically correct speech and even make it illegal. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and yet counterbalance to that is the liberal humanistic uh, constitutional freedom of speech right that so far the Supreme Court of the United States has upheld. Uh, very conflicting ideas about how free can free speech be. Mm -hmm. And the reason that uh, I think the reason that spiritual utterances are not bugging people 
is that we've shifted our model from a typical God-oriented spirituality to a secular type of spirituality where uh, it just doesn't matter anymore. I mean, to some people it does, of course. But uh, uh, in some groups, uh, they don't want you defaming whatever, they're Christian or they're Islamic God. But for the most uh, part, that's not a threat. Mm -hmm. It's not a threat. Um, the, the, the dynamic, dynamic now, uh, on, I just finished teaching a course on American constitutional law and, um, and it's, uh, it's a big issue, especially on the West coast. Yeah. So, I mean, so what do you see as the future of that? Do you think, uh, we're going to get, is it inevitable? We're going to have, uh, really, really tight, uh, speech laws like they have in, uh, you know, say yes. the, the People's Republic. Right now, yeah. right now, but that doesn't mean it won't come back again. The the curve, of course, I'm on the West Coast. The uh, the the trend is toward a more collective type of humanism, where there's just some things that aren't done, mm -hmm. and there's just some things that aren't said. Mm -hmm. We all know that, right? Mm -hmm. That's just who we are. No, that's a collective type of social socialistic humanism that seems to be on the the rise now and um you know uh, i think i told you that uh, a couple months ago the governor of washington uh issued a proclamation that you can't eat animal products on monday in public schools in solidarity <laughs> with uh with nature right you know because that's just the way things done you yeah know, we do that that's just the way things are done yeah uh, so the trend is, seems to be toward a more collective uh, thing, but there may be limits to that. Um, you know, Bernie just dropped out of the race. That, that's what he represented, a more collective equality view. Now, if we carry, you know, our Constitution uh, has some uh, polar opposites, and individual freedom is the polar opposite of equality. Because you cannot have a, a society that's equal without limiting personal freedom in some way of some individuals. Yeah. So our equality view that we all ought to make the same amount of money and it's vile to make more money than your neighbor and, uh, and we all have an equal vote, in, in, including the you know, people in the insane asylums, and we can't even say insane asylums anymore. And you, by the way, this is not uh, uh, Easter anymore on the West Coast. This is uh, the spring awakening. Oh, that's nice. And Easter eggs in Washington State are uh, spring spheres. Okay. <laughs> you don't go Easter egg hunting if you're with children. You go spring sphere hunting. Oh. And we all know that. That's part of that collected equality view. And it's a powerful current in our Constitution and our history, um, as well. As, and then the polar opposite of that, of course, is personal freedom. Right. We hold these, uh, these truths to be self-evident. You know, all men were created equal, but they have an equal playing field and they can excel in personal freedom. So you studied the Constitution. You studied constitutional law a lot. So... 
so let me let me ask you this and see what you think of it. So the regarding that that seeming contradiction of of liberty and equality, how they're not really they can't they don't they're actually kind of different things, right? Because you can't have equality without taking away liberty and 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 somehow forcing forcing uh, equal circumstances. I've heard one interpretation of that is the sense in which they meant equality is equality of um, opportunity, to guarantee equality yes. of opportunity yep. rather than equality of, um, of outcomes, right? Yes. Because uh, equality of oh. outcomes, always re- it always requires the use of force. That's right? a traditional, that's the traditional conservative American view, that all men are born equal. Right. But of course, the counter to that is, of course, we're not born equal. Right. If you're born into a rich family in Connecticut, and you have a $10 million endowment fund, and you go to uh, play four years in Yale, and then you make enough connections that you can go in the oil business or whatever, that's not being born equal to the person in the ghetto. Right. But that is part of our important American myth. Yeah. So, but I mean, so, okay. So can I play um, basketball like, like LeBron James? Um, you no, have the opportunity. No, because of how I was born, there's no way I could ever play <laughs> basketball true. like LeBron James. That's and an so, unpleasant truth. That's not fair. <laughs> so that's not fair. So how are we going to equalize that? Well, you, I mean, you can only shoot me up with so many steroids to get me even close to LeBron James. So you're going to have to, like, break his legs. So you break his legs, no, then maybe we're fair. To have to, you're going to have to limit – the amount of money that, that you can make, you can get rid of professional uh, uh, athletics in colleges. You can, you know, you can put in uh, grade limitations. So you have to earn a C to stay in uh, uh, college athletics. You can do, and we see all those trends right. happening. Yeah, because it is a belief; it's a religious belief right. that all people are equal. Yeah, the greatest experiment of that type of social equality was in the Soviet Union. Uh huh. That we're all in this together, we're all equal, and if we're all lower-class poor people, we'll be in it together, and then we'll raise the collective thing. Now, the the reason that failed may be genetic. I mean, according to uh, (laughs) Professor Harari of the uh, Hebrew University, uh, Homo sapiens sapiens, they're just bad people. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, they uh, they will cooperate and be loving as a group as long as it's in their best interest. And then they'll lie, cheat, steal and murder and even commit genocide if they feel that it, they're against the wall or it's in their best interest or that they can succeed at that. And that's really about the, you know, I practiced law behind the Iron Curtain during the communist years um, in Poland. Okay. And really what caused that curtain to come down uh, was nothing about philosophy. It was about Levi jeans. Oh yeah. It was a. It, it was about Levi jeans. It was about uh, Coca Cola. It was about wanting for yourself something extra. Mm-hmm. It was a wholesale rejection of social humanism. Yeah. And uh, so. Uh, it, this this idea of liberal humanism, social humanism, their philosophies, their myths, their religions. The sad reality is that we have to look at the human genome and see where we are right now and see the limits of cooperation and the reality of greed. Mm-hmm. 
And that's pain. That's painful. Mm-hmm. That's very painful. That's what you were talking about in terms of seeing the dark side as well as the dark, looking into the inner, uh, well, it's not dark or light, looking into the de- the inner reality of our mind. Yeah, the inner reality of it. You can use the metaphor of the looking into the darkness because, say, this is a hidden, these are the hidden yeah. parts of the, uh, yeah. the, the psyche, yeah. the forgotten parts of the psyche. So it's kind of yeah. a, a dark. It's not good and, or bad. And, and, it's just who we are. Right. No, it's just who we are. And, you know, uh, I, I consider that from a, from a left-hand path perspective, I consider that, uh, you know, rational self-interest. That's part of like, no, that's part of being a, being a human is you you have your own personal interests. You, you want to gain things for yourself. You want to be happy. You want to live comfortably. Personal you want to live well, you know, and, you know, have yeah, fun. Personal and... empowerment is living in to the reality of what you are, not your, not your philosophy, who you really are genetically. Yeah. And even if, you know, and, and the other problem with, um, you know, the, trying to enforce equality on any level or trying to change that is that then the solution is, well, you have to have people manage that, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's people that are going to make the decisions about, well, what's the, you know, all, all the options that you mentioned about like, you know, changing the grades, or are we going to do that? Yeah. Or are we going to, you know, change the way, you know, professional sports are scored? Well, you need a team of, of experts to do that. And you have to remember that those people suffer from all of the same human weaknesses and jealousies and greed as all the people that they're trying to manage. So they will well, inevitably you know, make decisions. That problem, that, yeah, that's true. But that problem... Are we out of time? Uh, no. Um, uh, that problem exists in herd animals too. Mm-hmm. Because herd animals uh, often, uh, not often, but they will uh, castrate the rams, the male ones, mm-hmm. that show independence yeah. and act like rams. That's why we're not black sheep. We're black rams. <laughs> because we're so far, they haven't castrated us. <laughs> And also the female sheep that show inquisitiveness and like to explore, they kill them. They keep the beta castrated uh, male and the non-inquisitive female. I have a story if I can tell it. It'll take three minutes. Go for it. But I was driving into Dodge, Kansas Mm. um, some years ago. And uh, stink from the 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 feedlots or I mean they go for miles and you you drive into Dodge and there's feedlots that always have been since the 19th century but they're they're feedlots and they're just miles and miles of them and it's horrible you, 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 the the animals are in shit and mud and everything and they're fed and they're fattened up with hormones and then killed and shipped to Iowa and Chicago to the slaughter line well when I was driving through and looking at this miserable picture of all the feedlots and everything, I saw a lone steer Hmm. that jumped the fence and ran, and ran through the streets of South uh, Dodge. I kept following him, I couldn't stop it. And then he ran out onto the prairie. You know, his life expectancy you could measure on the prairie is in days. You know, if a, a wolf or a coyote or, you know, a farmer or the feedlot people come and kill him. But it was, to me, it was symbolic. It may not be true, but it was, uh, 
It was a symbolic gesture of freedom that even a few hours outside of the feedlot before they emasculate you and slaughter you was worth it. Mm. Was worth it. And to me, you know, I even wrote a short story on it that, uh, uh, you know, God didn't mean us to, to be a feedlot animal. And it's the way that, that we practice animal husbandry and still, still the genetic longing for freedom of a steer. Well, I mean, he had horns, the steer, to escape the feedlot and death and that collective. Now, you know, uh, hundreds of others didn't. They stayed there and drank the bad water. They ate the food. They took the hormones and they got slaughtered. So it's around and that urge, that urge is, uh, is still there. You know, I, I used to raise chickens and I had a couple of guinea hens and uh, the chickens wouldn't go anywhere. I mean, they were just there I, at night. They'd go back into their house. But the guinea hens didn't. The guinea hens that I tried to keep, they always flew away. They preferred life in the woods where they would get eaten in short order to to that collective existence uh, as a as a, a herd flock. Uh, on the farm. I, I took these, these things very personal, and I think that they do apply to humans, because I do believe that there are attempts to keep humans as herd animals, as betas, as emasculated men, as women that are not inquisitive or empowered, but uh, uh, it, it takes a lot of effort, as you just mentioned. It takes a lot of effort. It failed in the Soviet Union. Um, hasn't failed exactly in China for other historical reasons, but it failed in, in, uh, in the Soviet Union. And so when it's not a threat, esoteric beliefs, esoteric groups, uh, groups freedom of speech, oh, go for it. Who the shit is listening to you? Mm -hmm. Once people catch on that this is a serious business and start jumping the fence of the feedlot and running out into the prairie, then it becomes a danger. And the Soviet Union proved it can collapse your economy. Mm. It can collapse your society. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of muscle power to hold people as uh, in, in check. So is that what happened? So is that what happened in, is that the story from the gospels is basically Pontius Pilate. They started to realize, Oh wait, shit. This guy's a bull. He's trying to get out of the pen. Oh, for Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> I don't you know. I don't know, if Jesus, I don't know if Jesus even lived. All right. So uh, they they bad crucified a lot of people. <laughs> so you said Dodge. You, you said Dodge, and I thought oh. immediately. I thought, get the fuck out of Dodge. Um, and I thought about you wrote. You oh, wrote that's a, a great saying. Yeah. Right. Get out of Dodge. And, Dodge. and see, that seems to tie in. And then I also thought, now you mentioned Dodge in another book of yours, Generations. Didn't you have a section where you talked about Dodge? Yeah, I told that story in, well, yeah, I told that story in, in Generations and, or maybe the uh, um, Confessions of a Religious Fanatic. It really stuck to me from a spiritual standpoint is being yourself, knowing yourself, knowing thyself and living in that reality. And isn't isn't Dodge like the history of Dodge with like gunfights and stuff like that mm -hmm. in the Wild West? There's kind of a it's it's like a good like like a polarized it's like a polarized town right with like sure. a, a sure. train North track. Dodge it's like, was a decent town. South Dodge was a, the horrible town. And like um, like wrong side of the tracks that term. Yeah. Oh, he came from wrong side of the tracks. That comes yeah. from from Dodge Dodge, Dodge culture, right? right? Dodge. That's fascinating. So. um 
tell me about I wanted to I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that book so people know about that too Confessions of a Religious Fanatic can we talk about that for a little bit sure, sure. tell me about it well I uh, um, I I had history as, as being a religious fanatic but now I was raised atheist I mean totally atheist but I became fascinating uh, fascinated in college with the idea of religion and Christianity in uh, in uh, particular now my view of as uh, I've practiced read and write spoken about history for a long time even when I was a trial lawyer but my view of history is participatory so um, uh, I was uh, uh, I uh, my wife at the time we started having children wanted to go to church. It was neither here nor there for me. So we joined the Episcopal Church. That's what she wanted to do. And then I and then we joined the Roman Catholic Church. And then I represented priests free as a as a as a lawyer uh, and got some horrible insights as a friggin' priest. They've got some horrible. You talk about confessions, <laughs> and then also some Protestant preachers. But I enjoyed the fanaticism of Christianity. My view was, why be a Christian if you're just going to, uh, you know, drag yourself in and sit down in a pew? That's a waste of stinking time. And here's some hypocrite make a, uh, uh, a sermon. I wanted to participate in every type of, of uh, Christian religion that I could. Uh, and so uh, I uh, really was fascinated with the charismatics in the Episcopal Church, the the uh, the charismatics in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pentecostals, that that basically believe this: that if there is a God, it's interactive. That there is, it's not a deistic type of uh, situation. Uh, it's uh, that uh, that there is it, it, God participates for good or ill mm -hmm. in your life, and uh, and is present all the time. Is even present in you. There's a panentheism in me for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, and so I was very active in all that. I was a, I was a, uh, um, a minor, uh, church leader in the Episcopal church, uh, called a lay reader. Uh, and in the Roman Catholic church, I was a communion server and, a and a charismatic group, uh, men's leader. And then, uh, and then also, uh, then I wanted to see about the Protestant, uh, religion. So I, so I started going to uh, uh, one of these wild Pentecostal churches, and uh, and then I, in that book I also uh, uh, talk about in my tra world travels I also went to Islamic uh, uh, functions I went to uh, Greek Orthodox a lot of them uh, and um, uh, Buddhist uh, I was a Buddhist uh, actively meditating Buddhist studied Buddhism for about five years. So I put all this in uh, Confessions of a Religious Fanatic as my own spiritual uh, biography. And in the, in the midst of it, I, I have over 600 footnotes that talk about religious movements in the United States from the year 1800, maybe a little before that, to the present date. And the wild, crazy people that uh, have emerged, I mean, absolutely insane, mm -hmm. uh, religious leaders uh, from the... Uh, Bopop, uh, uh, you know, cult, uh, the suicide cults to, uh, to everything, the Mormon history and whatever. So that's yeah. uh, that book. And that's uh, 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 kind of my personal Bible, because I can go back 
there's nothing new under the sun in, in human uh, history. So I can, it, it, once we hear um, the current uh, preachers talk about the virus and stuff, it, it all has precedences in the past. Yeah. So that's where the book came from. And I also talk about my accommodation with, uh, with cancer and uh, with uh, Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. So that's very close and the, to me. And the elimination because... of fear. And the elimination of fear. Yeah. Which I think is, uh, and then also some Eastern healing, physical, medical healing that is directly related to overcoming fear of death. You overcome fear of death. That's it. You'll live a healthy life. You'll live as long as you need to live. Yeah. But then uh, things like that. Yeah. And that's a that's a that's a struggle. I think the fear of death. You know. Um, it's, it's a struggle it's, until it's not. Right. Right. It's like something that's that uh, very freeing when you don't. But you know, when I had cancer, the doctors said, you know, I was going to die like real quick. Well, you know, I came to live with you. Yeah, I know. I was going to so, say this uh, whole this whole this whole. Uh, Discussion is something very close to me because so just so everybody who's listening knows during this time right after Katrina I, I gave away all my stuff. I gave away my guns. I gave away yeah. my jewelry uh -huh. I gave away my uh, things that I'd heard from my father and grandfather. I gave away my suits to uh -huh. charity I tailor-made suits. I, I took the doctors at their word all my children five children came from all over the United States to be at me in my deathbed when I had tubes in it and everything uh -huh. I wrote out my own funeral <laughs> Uh, you my own funeral service, uh, and then and then I had this. I won't say come to Jesus because Jesus wasn't in the discussion, but it, that come to Jesus thing, where I realized that fear was the killer. You died of fear in cancer, mm -hmm. and it read a lot up about uh, cancer and uh, viruses and things of this nature, and overcame the fear. And I'm one of the. I'm a poster child uh, for uh, the type of rare cancer that I had. I'm one of the like six percent of people that lived uh, beyond three years at the time, and now I'm on year fifteen. That's awesome of, of having lived it. That's and great. Uh, and if uh, you know the uh, the oncologist said, no, you still got the virus. You still got the cancer. I just don't have, don't have any effects of it because of this whole accommodation thing to live without fear. And when you do that and you realize it's okay if you die. I mean, it's okay if a, if a fetus dies in utero. Mm -hmm. It's okay if a three-year-old. It's mm -hmm. just release that fear. It's really empowering. Yeah. I mean, it's extremely empowering uh, when you no longer uh, are so afraid to die. That uh, that you won't die. That's really the theme of the book. Yeah. Well, that's the sub silentio theme of the book. It's 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 close to me because I remember that time period after Katrina when you came to Houston. <laughs> I I like to consider that uh, my blood platelets, you know, yeah. helped. They helped. You know. You know. Yeah. Helped uh, in the in the struggle to uh, so you could stick around long enough to overcome your fear. And and synthesize or consume, consume well, that um, experience you know, the, and integrate it. And and, and what pre, what prior you know, don't give a shit attitude and a nihilistic attitude. Get drunk, fall down, piss on yourself. You know all that shit. <laughs> uh, you know that's part and parcel with just releasing it, just giving it up. You know? Yeah. But as far as dying now, shit, I don't have to have a deathbed experience. I've already had it. <laughs> you know. 
everybody's come to my bedside. They did that a decade and a half ago. Yeah. What is new about that? Yeah. That's awesome. Everybody should die. Yeah. So, so um, I've got this poem I read, uh, I wrote in my collected uh, Buddhist uh, poetry book. And it, uh, it's a dialogue between you and your friend. And, uh, uh, you know, the friend says, I'm going to, I've got cancer uh, in, uh, and it's incurable. And, and, and then the friend says, well, no, it, everything's curable. He says, well, how, is, how am I going to be cured of, of this cancer? And the, the answer is die. <laughs> <laughs> die to self. Yeah. Die to self. Die to ego. And uh, you'll live a happy life. Wow. Well, that's good. I can't top that. Oh, what about you got a new book coming out? This Horrible Day in Spokane History? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm uh, referred to by the uh, the uh, the mainline historians, uh, academic historians, as the Gothic historian of, Sp of uh, Spokane or Eastern Washington. Because they say, well, you always talk about the dark crap, you know, the serial killers, the plagues, the stuff. And yes, I do, because it's so important to be complete. I talk about the serial killers, the abusers, the hatchet murders, uh, uh, not exclusively, but I include the natural disasters, because it is human tendency to forget all that. You know, and if you read, I started reading when I started teaching the history of Spokane and the history of Washington uh, for our local college, I started reading these nauseating books about history that of, of these areas that were written at the time. I mean, they could make you puke. Uh, you know, the Indians were all so happy that the whites arrived and they worked, the good Indians worked with the whites, the bad ones were driven away, and then the, and, and then the industrialist and the Gilded Age was a time of unprecedented wealth and happiness, and, uh, you know, we didn't talk about prostitutes and we didn't talk about disease. We never, it took me a long time to find out about the uh, Russian pandemic of 1890 because nothing was written on it. <laughs> so I had to go back and pour through these newspaper articles at the time and these old references and come upon it. And, and I became convinced this isn't first grade for God's sake. History is history, and it's important for people to understand the, quote, dark, in quote, side of their own human nature that brings this shit on themselves. The war, the pestilence, the genocide, the, uh, the wife abuse, they bring it on themselves. And yet there's a tendency to cover it up. You know, the historical lies and myths are one of the biggest cover-ups in uh, certainly American history. So yeah, I'm the Gothic. I'm the dark one. So this this horrible day in Spokane history is 365, 366 entries of realistic things that happened on this day in Spokane history. And we've had our cases. I told you this morning, mm -hmm. we've had more serial killers in Washington State than any other state in the union except Wash except Virginia. Wow. And they're fun. They're interesting. I mean, everybody loves a good story. Hell, I've got books. I've got books like this. The uh, From Helmets to Headbands, Historic Hats and Head Coverings of America. Oh, okay? sweet. Well, I have history books like this. I've got boxes of them in my attic. Hey, Nobody wants to buy them, but... Is, is that a picture of uh, of your yeah, son, is, of Mike on there? Yes. Yeah. Filled it with my family. That's awesome. 
And then, but you do this. Oh, Spooky too... Spokane. That's a picture of my wife. Oh, yeah. Nice. She, didn't she, she? It's sad. She looks like a great widow. Oh, yeah. Good looking she's widow. Beautiful, but, beautiful gothic kind of look there with that umbrella yeah, out there. Kind of a, yeah, you ought to try sleeping with her. It's even weirder. <laughs> but uh, but this is a story about serial killers, ghost stories of uh, Spokane myth, dark mythology, our uh, our Playboy bunnies, our hatchet murders, our cannibals uh, that we have. And this is a this was just hailed a month ago as one of the uh, the lasting local bestsellers in Spokane. We get we sell crap loads of them because people want to hear this. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's just like the uh, the virus that we have now. People love that virus. Uh-huh. Don't take our virus away from us. <laughs> it was fun. It was like going to a scary movie and getting scared and then going home and forget about it. Yeah, but boy, we could. I, I had a girlfriend once that would. Uh, uh, she loved to go to horror movies because she'd sit on the back row and she'd stand up and ah, she'd scream. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, you know, like she was terrified. Uh, you know, people were hissing at us. But we leave the movie and she said, oh, that was great. <laughs> that's just like the pandemic. It doesn't get better than this. A little crisis. That's yeah. a non real crisis. Yeah. But these are but my. Uh, this horrible day in Spokane is uh, real. It's the real crises. Sweet. Whether they, whether they were myth, mythological or actually throat-cutting serial killers. But it's, a, it's an attempt uh, to philosophically to, to adjust us to reality. And it's not for everyone, but it is fun to read the book. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it is. You're a great writer. When's that, when's that coming out? Well, when I get 366 entries, it's it's uh, it's a little easier than I think, but it'll certainly be next year. Oh, okay, gotcha. All right, there's a work in progress then. Yeah, sweet. It's a write off. All right. Well, awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with us here. We're gonna have to do this again. Um, I'm gonna post like uh, links and stuff in the show notes page. So people will know where to find your books and where they can can get this stuff, and and I can't recommend them more. Like every everything you've ever uh, written, Uncle John, I've just enjoyed it incredibly. You have this perfect uh, balance of putting your your personal experience into it, and then, like you said, having these historical citations and stuff to put it in a broader context, and it's all like real good stuff. All right, all right, Easy, nephew. All right. all right. Well, hey, keep Bye-bye. fighting the good fight. Ah, or don't, the bad fight. <laughs> don't catch that coronavirus. Oh, well, try not to. But All if right. I do, hey, shit happens. That's right. Shit happens. It's, right. it's only death. It's only death. Well, right. yeah. We don't even know what death is. Yeah. All right. Take yeah. care. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Next time. <laughs>